Constraints drive innovation. But using technology to essentially look at the gap between a worker and a unit of work, doesn't even need to be a job, is where I think the, the biggest value is at the moment. Because it's really hard, especially without any background knowledge, to get an idea of what the actual gap is. Hey everyone, it's Matt here for another episode of Thinking Inside the Box, the show where each week we discuss the most complex issues related to work and culture. If you're interested in checking out our other content, you can find us at bentohr.com. And now, for select episodes in virtual reality each Thursday evening at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time in Altspace VR, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts by searching Thinking Inside the Box. In today's episode, I chat with Michael Warnu, the founder and chief product officer at TechWolf, a machine learning-based startup in Belgium. And TechWolf uses AI to connect people, jobs, and education based on their skills. And their product helps large enterprises proactively manage strategic workforce planning needs. So it's a particularly interesting topic now, given the shifting nature of skills and competencies in organizations but also the broader workforce. And as geography becomes less of a determining factor for success, the idea of making more decisions based on strategic workforce planning skills and competencies just makes so much sense. Uh, And we had a great conversation. We talked about strategic workforce planning. What is it even? And why is it important for organizations to look at? We talked about analytics in general, some of the trends, some of the common challenges that Michael's searing from his clients. And what competencies are now in highest demand in a post-COVID world? And we close the episode with a bit of a unique segment. I don't normally talk about my personal issues, but of late, I've been working through a lot of biohacking initiatives and strategies, attempting to, if you will, hack my own success as an entrepreneur. And we spend the last 15 or so minutes talking about sleep and the importance of sleep and some of the lessons I've been able to pick up over the preceding months around how to optimize your sleep for performance. It's an interesting segment, so I'll be curious. If you're interested in hearing more content like that, leave your comments in the comment section wherever you find your favorite podcast or reach out to me directly. I've been asked in the past to share information about my approach to entrepreneurship, my approach to leadership, and some of the you know, habits and behaviors and tactics that I use to optimize performance. And I'm happy to do more of that in the future if it's interest. But without further ado, let's get back to Michael Warnu from TechWolf. Michael. How are you, my friend? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for stopping by. I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. It's um, it's a beautiful day here in Vancouver, Canada, and a perfect day for a great conversation. And I've been looking forward to this chat now for some weeks. We connected. Oh, I think it was even before the Christmas holiday break. And um, you know, learning a bit about you and Tech Wolf, I've been really excited about the conversation. But before I jump into that. Let's learn a bit more about Michael, the kind of the man behind TechWolf. Tell us a bit about yourself, your journey, and, and what brought you to today. 
All right, definitely. So I'm uh, Michael. I'm uh, based in Belgium. My uh, my mom was born here. Uh, my dad's from Togo. That's a pretty small country in uh, West Africa. At the moment, I live in uh, in Ghent. I went to uni here, and a lot of people stick around for a while after getting their degree. There's a vibrant startup ecosystem here. Lots of cool companies, and even one of Belgium's few unicorns uh, is based in Ghent. So uh, there's that. Uh, myself, I have a background in computer science engineering, specialization in AI, machine learning, and natural language processing. I met my best friends uh, here while obtaining the degree, started the company uh, with them while studying, and now uh, chief product at TechWolf, uh, changing the world with uh, AI-based strategic workforce planning. And it couldn't be better time to be talking about um, AI-enabled workforce planning. I mean, the workforce has gone through a monumental shift. Tell me a bit about for those who may not be familiar with the term, what is strategic workforce planning? Yeah, great question. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to quote someone uh, that actually wrote a book about this. So Aaron Ross defines strategic workforce planning as a framework for analyzing both your current and desired future workforce states. And I think thinking about it like a framework really makes sense. What TechWolf does is just supporting uh, the framework with artificial intelligence, but strategic workforce in itself is about making sure you know your talent supply. You can use talent demand to contextualize that information. You can detect skill gaps and you use that information for workforce decision support. And uh, that's how I like to define uh, strategic workforce planning. It's a discipline that's been around a lot longer than some people might think. Uh, I remember my experience of workforce planning goes back I'm almost 10 years now, to be honest. And it actually started, for those who don't know, I was a, you know, a business executive with Walmart for a number of years in HR and um, you know, obviously an organization that has a large employee base. I think at the time when I worked there, the worldwide employee base was 2 million. Um, in Canada, where I'm based, the workforce was 96,000 employees. So as you can appreciate, workforce planning was a significant indicator of success. And we used it in a very, I'll, I'll characterize it as utilitarian. I mean, in retail, it's a high turnover industry. Um, there is, you know, in a lot of cases, 30, 40% annualized turnover, in some cases, much higher. And the, the necessity to have the right resources in the right place at the right time is absolutely essential to be able to uh, ensure that you can meet the customer expectations, that you can complete all your business operations activities, um, and also to do so with a degree of cost certainty. And I think it's that intersection of, if you will, the customer expectation, business efficiencies, and cost uh, containment that is really a sweet spot for workforce planning. We took a, a very utilitarian approach to it, but I also know that organizations are, they, they look at strategic workforce planning from a talent competency perspective. So I think about Michael, organizations like yours that are very tech focused, you want to make sure you have the right skill sets in the organization at the right time to be able to pair them to demand, to pair them to potential growth in the organization. So it's really about aligning the workforce, both in terms of numbers, but also skills and abilities for future demand. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we see that skill-based strategic workforce planning is just gaining in, in relevance. And just the strategic in front of workforce planning uh, does the same thing. So really thinking about what you need to be successful in the future. For example, we have a lot of customers in Talco. Talco is transforming uh, to just becoming a technology provider. Uh, so 
making sure you have the right skills to be successful in that transformation uh, and thinking about that long term is what it uh, what strategic workforce planning is all about. Exactly right. And I'll add one more wrinkle. So just so we can level set with our audience here around what this is. The other wrinkle of workforce planning is once you identify the need. So once you have a situation in place where we identify that your organization needs this particular skill set and this particular uh, volume of number of people in this skill set, um, the next decision that organizations have to make is how are you going to acquire that skill set? Um, and that's where, from an HR perspective, we would play a more active role to determine, and there's three categories. There's, there's building the talent, which means internal development, succession, investing in the internal resources in your organization so they can take on other opportunities. There's borrowing which is exactly what it sounds like. Usually you're bringing people in on short-term you know, engagements, consultants, gig workers, um, people on temporary secondments, or there's buying, which is straight up recruitment. So if you don't have the right skill set, let's say you are an organization that is really focusing in on, let's say, cybersecurity, for example. Um, and that's a skill that's increasingly in demand in organizations today, but is, is often scarce in the market. You may have to go and find that talent outside the four walls of your organization. So you may have to go out and buy. Um, and the reason that we segment into those three categories is generally speaking, and not in all cases, but generally speaking, buying is the most expensive of the three options. It's usually more costly to go to the open market and find talent because you're paying a premium. Whereas if you develop talent from within, yes, there is an investment to grow talent, but usually um, you see that their, their wage rates have been depressed because as the market rate for roles increases, the internal rate of wage growth usually is slower in most markets and most industries. Um, so modest investments in internal resources often deliver significant financial benefits over the long term, especially as you think about workforce planning. But Michael, what excites me about your solution is that when we used to do this work, it was Excel spreadsheets and point your finger in the wind and see which way the direction was blowing in terms of uh, what was happening, who was going to potentially retire, or where do we see new um new locations opening up in terms of growth. Where do we see turnover opportunities? But it was very much, you know, looking back to look forward, looking at previous trends to project future trends. And with Excel spreadsheets, uh, I am so confident and so excited to hear about TechWolf taking things to the next level of sophistication. Tell me a bit about how you guys have hacked that and, and what, you know, what unique value prop TechWolf brings to this conversation. Yeah, so going back to the, the framework we were talking about earlier, um, there's four components and in each of those four components, we're actually using technology to uh, step away from the uh, Excel spreadsheets, as you said. So I think one of the crucial aspects of strategic workforce planning is being able to know what your talent supply is. So essentially having a skill inventory. And here's where a lot of vendors are uh, coming up with skill clouds. We see talent marketplaces doing skill inference and so on and so forth, but it goes beyond that. You have multiple HR systems that are generating lots of data about employees, and that data can actually be used to predict skills. So in the, the talent supply, uh, part of strategic workforce planning, you can use AI, natural language processing, to detect skills of employees and use that information to get a, a global view of what is present inside the walls of the organization. Then on the talent demand part, you see that you can use labor market intelligence to make strategic sourcing decisions to see where talent is in high demand and low demand, where it might make sense to open up a new office and so on and so forth. The third component 
is in detecting skill gaps. And that's where it gets really tricky. We see a lot of learning experience providers researching this. Uh, players like the Greed are investing heavily in just being able to detect skill gaps on individual levels, but using technology to essentially look at the gap between a worker and a unit of work doesn't even need to be a job is where I think the, the biggest value is at the moment, because it's really hard, especially without any background knowledge, to get an idea of what the actual uh, gap is. And if you bring those three together, you can start to think about workforce decision support. And that's then again, uh, should I buy, build or borrow talent? And actually, to, uh, to go on about that, uh, I think Burning Glass released a uh, report few months ago about uh, salary premiums certain skill has. Uh, so if you look at salary premiums, so uh, skills you might possess where the market will pay a premium for, uh, using that information and skill adjacency, so skills that might be in the vicinity of your own skill set, you can really start to think uh, strategically about whether it would make sense to buy or build uh, talent, and you can even attach a dollar value to it. So in a nutshell, that's where technology comes in uh, with uh, strategic workforce planning. That's really exciting. And it, I can definitely hear the incremental value in terms of the of the, the tech wolf offering, if you will. But I think for those folks that may still be thinking through, like, how does this apply in my organization? You know, I, I think about the majority of business executives that I'm speaking with today, they're shell-shocked from 2020. I mean, we didn't expect... I mean, it goes without saying, we didn't expect what we had in store for 2020 in a number of different realms. Most organizations have gone through forced digital transformation over the course of the last 12 months. And they're still trying to figure out how they're going to show up differently in 2021 and going forward. And that a lot of that comes back to the core identity of the business, the core strategy, the customer value proposition. And then we get into the workforce composition, which is where Tech Wolf really shines. I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the use cases or what are some of the challenges that you're hearing from clients as you speak to them in the market? Yeah, one is uh, obviously just knowing the skills of the workforce. Now with COVID, it has become even harder to know what talent is present uh, inside your so that's, um, let's say, a cluster of challenges uh, we see. And that is just uh, really tangible cases like redeploying the workforce. We see shifting workloads. You might get into operational workforce planning, but still thinking about how workloads shift and how your workforce, your current workforce makeup uh, is reflected in that is, is one of the main use cases we're tackling right now. And then, of course, looking at the longer term or the medium term to see how that changes over time. That makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense for a number of reasons. I'm curious, though, as we talk about the talent and the composition of talent of the competencies, one term you, you mentioned earlier that I want to just explore a little bit more is this idea of talent adjacencies and competency adjacencies. Can you speak a bit more about what that means in the context of organizations and why that might be important? Yeah, definitely. So I think uh, Gardner uh, first came up with the term skills adjacencies, and it's something that almost comes up naturally when you start thinking about skills. So for example, if you would look at the skills a marketeer would have or a content marketeer would have, there's things like copywriting, digital marketing, and so on and so forth. And then it's really interesting to start thinking about the skills that are adjacent to uh, copywriting, like creative writing, uh, like uh, creating click-worthy content, uh, ad copy, and so on and so forth. So the, the concept of skills adjacencies is actually using AI to model those relationships and then using that to detect possible hops uh, that 
might not be identified by a human uh, or that might not necessarily be uh, straightforward. Uh, but if you have a model um, looking at how skills relate to one another and, and actually knowing what the transferable parts of skills are, uh, then you can look at really interesting uh, parts, redeployment parts, reskilling parts within the organization. I assume that has a, takes on a greater significance today where the talent requirements, what we look for in organizations and their colleagues has also shifted. So, you know, tech wolf's utility in this application in a pre-COVID world would have been very compelling. I assume it's even more compelling today where I think about the evolution, Michael, of workforces. And I think about as an HR executive, what are some of the challenges I need to be thinking through? And there's three questions that I've been asking myself a lot. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking through what are challenges in organizations, you know, in part because it's important for me as an entrepreneur to understand from a consultancy perspective, what are some of the challenges that are being faced by organizations so that that we can meet, respond and meet those challenges. And if I was a business executive today, I'd be asking myself questions like, how do you build and maintain culture in the context of a hybrid workplace? That's a question I'd be asking myself a lot because previously we relied a lot on what I'll characterize as informal methods of connection. So that that proverbial water cooler, that let's meet in the coffee line during our break, uh, let's have drinks after work. Like these were areas that we could use to, uh, yes, connect and, and, and certainly socialize. But in a lot of cases, business was moved forward um, in these informal conversations. I think about the meetings before the meetings and the meetings after the meetings in, in the Fortune 1000 companies that I've worked in. And Those interactions were so critical in order to build relationships, build trust, and ultimately build influence in order to move decisions forward. Now that we're in a hybrid workforce where most people are working from home or working offsite, and we're moving into a a reality that I believe is going to be highlighted by by the fact that there will be this back and forth. People will have more flexibility to choose when they work from home, when they work from the office, that the organizations will allow for more flexibility by dictating specific meetings or business activities that need to be conducted at the office, but will in a lot of cases allow for greater flexibility. And I think about the skills necessary for both individual contributors, but also leaders on how to operate and how to lead people in the context of now remote work. I I know far too many business executives that have never managed a remote team, which is when you think about it, startling, but it's, it's, a, it's a fact of the matter that a lot of organizations pre-COVID, you know, working from home was an exception. It was an accommodation that was made. Um, it wasn't a, a standard business practice. And I think about the skills necessary to thrive in those environments, the, the, the competencies that are successful and what looks like success has to shift going forward. So I'm curious, as you're talking to clients, are you hearing similar themes? Are you hearing people talk about how even within the four walls of an organization, the, the, the desirable competencies have have shifted over the course of the last 12 months. Yeah, definitely. And even in the in the context of our own organization, we see that, yeah, just like you said, building and maintaining culture in this hybrid context is, is really hard. Uh, so what we've done is we just asked uh, our uh, co-workers to come up with ideas to really build this culture, this culture up in a, in a hybrid world. And that has been working really well. But I think we're quite fortunate as the the amount of employees is still uh, limited. We're 20 people right now. We see that the organizations, uh, our customers with tens of thousands of employees, 
are really struggling to to make sure that everybody stays on board. Uh, and then on your second point, the, the skills individual contributors and leaders need for leading people in a remote workforce are completely different uh, than the skills uh, they, they needed, let's say, a year ago. Um, I'm curious, what, what do you think uh, those skills are? I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a big question. And I think it largely depends on the organization in which you operate and the environment in which you operate. But I think a couple of things that, to me, are increasingly important is delegation. As simple as that sounds, a lot of leaders and a lot of employees relied on the fact that you had a more frequent interaction informally with the employee. Um, so therefore, the idea of having structured weekly meetings was probably a practice that a lot of leaders have had to adapt if they're now working with remote teams. Like you have a weekly check-in with your team member and it's structured and it's very focused on, you know, how are you doing as an individual, but what are you working on and how can I help? And that being a very structured process for meetings. I think delegation is something that people have had to learn. Uh, I think about resilience, Michael. I mean, if it's 12 months have taught us anything, it's that we don't have as much control as we thought we might and that we need to be resilient, both as individuals and leaders, in order to have success going forward. So I think principles of resilience, I think principles of adaptability, the ability to shift your function, to shift your responsibilities, to shift the way that you think about problems. Um, I think that becomes increasingly important. So I think those are three examples that I would, would say have taken on greater importance. And one thing I, I want to be clear about is, the exciting thing, and maybe exciting isn't the right word, but I guess for me, I'm excited because for HR professionals, people like yourself, Michael, that have been working with business executives for quite some time, these are, these are attributes, these are competencies, these are changes that we've been evangelizing for years. So none of this is a surprise. I always envisioned a world where people would work from home more frequently. I didn't think it would happen this quickly. So there's a level of comfort about knowing that there are solutions that are available. There are many organizations that think about Basecamp, that they're entirely a remote organization, and they have been for years, that have been able to successfully create and nurture and grow their culture in a totally remote environment. And they have their own unique ways of doing that. And I think as we go through this journey, organizations will develop their own unique spin on a remote or a hybrid work model. Uh, but there is this interim period where you know what you know, and there's a bit of fear of the unknown um, when you haven't experienced it. So I take comfort in knowing that there are examples out there, but there is very much the fear is real around the present circumstances and, and shifting to this new reality. So I think, you know, those three competencies for me uh, are things I think about a lot. And, I, and I, I wonder, you know, as we get deeper into this space, if we are really going to embrace a true knowledge economy where the technical skills that we bring to the table are outshined by the competencies around working within teams remotely, building relationships remotely, resilience, you know, adaptability, emotional intelligence, things that I've been talking about, I, I, I think we're getting to a place where those suddenly take on greater importance. It's less about what you know in, in the terms of technical knowledge and more about how you work within those environments. Yeah, definitely. But it's, I think remote culture is a reflection, a reflection of your uh, existing culture, but still there's subtle differences uh, when interacting with people uh, over uh, video. If you haven't done it before, you, you still have to learn a thing or two. So we had uh, someone talk to us about the way we portray ourselves in, uh, in, in video conversations and just body language uh, in a Zoom call, let's say. At this point, it's almost become a, a meme uh, in our company, but we started doing an actual thumbs up instead of uh, <laughs> having a faceless expression or a, a, a light nod. 
uh, when something is good and when we see something that we actually approve because it's really hard to read the room uh, as they say when you're just in a remote context and 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 that sense I really I'm almost proud of the culture we were starting to uh, develop the remote or hybrid uh, culture we're, uh, we're we're starting to develop but it is a reflection of your existing culture so of course not everything is transferable but if the the people that are in your culture are committed to to building a a great organization and i'm 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 pretty confident uh, that the hybrid culture might even be better than uh, than the uh, culture that existed before that hey everyone it's matt here i hope you're enjoying the show before we continue i wanted to give a quick shout out to one of our sponsors benji the future of work is today and matt parsons and the team at benji have figured out a really cool hands-on learning solution that you need to be considering as you transition your organizational learning and team building and engagement online. Now, I spend several hours a day myself on video platforms. So whether it's Zoom or Skype or GoToMeeting, they're great. They allow me to interact with people and see them in all parts of the world. Though if you're like me, once those calls go on a bit too long, I start to get a little bit distracted. And it's not too long before I'm reaching for my smartphone or opening up another tab on my laptop. That doesn't happen with Benji. They have a catalog of interactive team exercises that makes it really easy for organizations and individual consultants to develop engaging solutions at any scale. And I'll be honest, I've been so impressed with the tool myself that we're actually looking at using Benji to power our virtual workshops with client-facing products. So I'm actually working right now with Matt one-on-one to develop a journey mapping exercise so we can take clients through the employee experience and illuminate thousands of dollars and hours of inefficiencies that organizations tend to have in their onboarding and hiring processes. It's a great tool. And Because you are a listener of the Thinking Inside the Box podcast, you're going to get a special benefit as well. I've talked to Matt. He wants to give as many people as possible access to this tool so they can make online learning more engaging. And you can do so as well by using the discount code BENTO20. So if you log on to the Benji website, which is mybenji.com, and you're as impressed with the solution as I am, then enter the code in BENJI20 and you'll receive 20% off your purchase. And with that being said, we'll return back to regular programming. Oh, I think so. And I, and I think you raised a couple of really good points. I think the first one is that you're right. If you have a, if you're starting from a good place with your culture, then you have a greater chance of success in this new reality. And you can build good culture in a physical environment, in a remote environment, or in a hybrid environment. And you do so with some intentionality. So I think one thing that we all would agree is that it doesn't happen by accident, that it doesn't happen just by happenstance. It is something where people have put some thought into creating one, a clear vision for success, a clear set of values and principles, and if you will, practices that organizations will follow, and then creating space to allow for people to express themselves within the broader context so that it can naturally evolve as the company ebbs and flows and as people come and go and as you grow and, and shrink. And you can do that, but like any relationship, it requires nurturing and it requires care and it requires intentionality and, um, and being thoughtful about you know how those things take place. The 
the shift to a hybrid culture, I agree with you. I think it's actually better aligned for the present circumstances that we find ourselves in. Michael, we've had this chat, I think, a couple of times before, which is, you know, the future of work was a, a, an overplayed term before 2020. And it was overplayed because while I accepted the principles were important in that we were moving towards a new world, a new existence, a new way of being, it was often simply talk and not a lot of action, that there was no intent behind it. It was clickbait thought leadership that we would see. And I'm probably guilty of using the term myself more than I probably should have. But without action, it really just was a theory. It was a concept. But it wasn't a concept that wasn't without its utility. I mean, we've moved into a space now where we're essentially connected to each other persistently. You know, I'm old enough to remember a time when we did not have mobile devices at work and you weren't persistently connected to your office, where, you know, if you wanted to check your work emails, you had to go into the office to check them, where somebody had to call you at home if they wanted to reach you. And that just wasn't a commonplace. And I grew up in an environment where that, that over time shifted, where it was an expectation where people would answer their phones on evenings and weekends, where your vacation was, yes, you got to be away from meetings in the office, but you still had to respond to urgent issues. And everyone's definition of urgent was different. And the rising rates of burnout are very real in a time where people haven't had necessarily the benefits of being able to fully disconnect from a stressful work environment. And the idea of insisting from an employer perspective that your employees be available, if you will, or connected 24-7, but then having concerns when employees would ask for flexibility within the standard working hours to you know, go for medical appointments or to cut out early to see your child's music recital, it was inequitable. And it was becoming increasingly inequitable as the hours of work um, started to shift and as work and life became less about balance and more about how do you definitely integrate the two I think the hybrid model is a much better template for us to look at where in the end of the day, we need to move away from this model of measuring inputs and presenteeism as measures of success. If you're in the office for 10 hours a day, that doesn't make you more valuable than somebody's in the office for five hours a day. What matters is the outputs that each of you deliver in the context of your your roles, your responsibilities, and your objectives. And it doesn't matter the time of day that you work. It doesn't matter where on the planet you work, as long as you can be connected and as long as you can be contributing to that overall mission. And the hybrid principles that we're talking about, yes, it's technology plays a key part of that, but the broader philosophy is that we're giving people the flexibility to be able to adapt work within the context of their lives And I think that's increasingly important because, spoiler alert, I don't see us regressing back to a place where it becomes acceptable to work nine to five, put your phone in your drawer and not respond to emails until the following day. I don't see a place where the expectations on leaders and employees is going to decrease. If anything, it's going to increase um, as organizations seek to recoup some of the lost opportunity in 2020. So I think this recognition of hybrid is the right decision. 
It gives people greater flexibility to choose when they can contribute. Um, and as long as they do contribute, that ultimately should be the that ultimately should be the measure of success. Yeah, definitely. And actually, people not being in, in the office forces you to look at outputs or even just outcomes. And essentially, every great leader should care about outcomes. And you don't care uh, at the end of the day how many hours were put in. You just care about the outcome, the business outcome uh, that has been achieved. I'm a great fan of, of, of uh, OKRs. Uh, and essentially, they detail outputs or outcomes, and that's how we, we run the business as well. Uh, and if you can do that in two hours or in three hours, that's fine. Uh, and if you do that in eight or nine hours, that's fine as well. Uh, but we really look at the outcome for, uh, for every coworker at TechWolf and not just the presenteeism as you, uh, as you touched upon. And I think it just is a recognition of, again, present circumstances. We are now in a time where even from a generational perspective, I know many people who are living in households with three generations where they may be caring for their parents and caring for children, um, where people are you know, having to be dual income households to be able to afford the cost of living. So there is a lot of additional pressures on the individual today than there was 50 years ago. And there's certainly greater flexibility um, in terms of the technology to be able to accommodate hybrid. But unfortunately, until this most recent shift in this forced digital transformation, it only went one way. And we, we, we use the technology to assure the connectivity of the individual in the context of their employment, but we didn't give them the same benefits to use the technology to increase their flexibility in the context of their employment. So I'm glad to see this shift. I'm excited about the potential. And I agree with you. I think that Ultimately, if you're looking at outputs and outcomes, we should incentivize people to complete their work with a high degree of quality and to do so efficiently. And if that takes you less time, then you should benefit from that. And you should look at sharing that knowledge with your coworkers so that people can benefit from you know, that expertise. It's important that people have time away from work. It's important that people look after their health and one other thing that I'm hoping continues post-pandemic is this renewed or this invigorated, um, if you will, expectation or importance being placed on the whole self and mental health and burnout, because those things are very real. And, you know, Michael, one thing we've talked a lot about in, in our chats previously was, you know, the idea of entrepreneurship and you know, you, you run a business, I run a business, um, and entrepreneurship is as much about mastering yourself and taking care of yourself because when you are a small business and when you are a growing business, the, the health of your business will mirror the health of you. They're interchangeable. And the ability of you as a leader and as an entrepreneur and as a founder is, it, it's, indelibly, at least an indelible mark on the business. So looking after yourself and looking after your health and looking after things like sleep and nutrition and fitness are just so critically important. So I'm, I'm glad to see that for those of like you and I who've been practicing this now for several years, that we've now seen more focus on this in the corporate context because people will find a direct correlation between the habits that they undertake in their personal lives and how it shows up at work. Yeah, 100%. And uh, just to continue on your point about mental health, I think Andreessen Horowitz uh, said that the ability to manage your own psychology is the most important thing 
uh, as a founder. But uh, apart from being a founder or not, just managing your own mental health is, I think, one of the most crucial skills uh, an individual can possess, or at least you can learn. Uh, I've been in, uh, into self-reflection for the past, let's say, 12 months, and that has helped me a lot. I used to be into journaling, and then I learned to split up journaling and self-reflection. So journaling would be brain dumping. Uh, but self-reflection is really asking myself questions, looking at what works and what doesn't work, and then using that information to just get a sense of calm, but also to improve uh, for, for the next day. So, yeah, definitely. It's critical. Uh, it's absolutely critical. And in this hectic world that we're in, there's not a lot of time for organic self-reflection because we don't have time. So there's no shortage of activities that we can put in front of self-reflection or mindfulness practices. So the fact that you're intentionally creating space in your schedule for that, um, I think it's first off, it's great. And I'm not surprised to hear that it's had dividends. You know, one PSA I'll also add to the pile. You know, I've been focusing a lot over the last several years on, on fatigue. And for me in particular, fatigue has been a real challenge. It's, I, I started recognizing my own challenges with fatigue about four years ago. And I went through a number of different tactics and steps and hacks, everything from changing my diet countless times, buying weighted blankets, buying special lights, nutrition, um, supplements, blackout curtains, melatonin, all these different, you know, supp- all these different, you know, medications in an attempt to try and get better sleep, really looking at sleep hygiene, my sleep environment as a mechanism of trying to solve for what had been persistent fatigue. I mean, I, you know, I've shared with you about before, Michael, I haven't had a, a really good night's sleep in probably four years, which when you're an entrepreneur has a a toll. It takes a toll. Day after day, you're getting up and you're more tired than you were the previous day. It, of course, it affects everything from your mood to your energy levels, to your motivation, to your sharpness, to your memory. Um, it has effects on depression and anxiety. Um, and if it's persistent for long enough, it can have serious effects on your long-term health, cardiovascular issues, strokes, um, dementia. I mean, all these connections between having really good sleep and you know your overall health. There's been thousands and thousands of studies about this. Um, and I recently made a couple of other investments in my health around addressing sleep. I bought an Aura Ring towards the end of 2020. And for those who aren't familiar, Aura Ring is a is an activity and sleep tracker that is a ring and you you know put it on yourself. And of all the tools that I've tried, it is far and away the most accurate tool in terms of measuring both the length and the quality of your sleep. I used to have a sleep tracker on my, my cell phone that was telling me every night that I was getting really good sleep and deep sleep. But I was like, that doesn't make sense. I'm getting up and I feel terrible put the ring on. And the first time I put it on, um, it says, well, actually you're not getting great sleep. You're getting a lot of light sleep, but you're not getting very deep sleep. And I went through finally kind of just hit a wall and said, I just need to like surrender to this fatigue and, and just get in front of as many doctors as I possibly can um, come to find out that I've been now diagnosed with um, obstructive sleep apnea and that all of the environmental changes that I had made, all the nutritional changes that I had made, all the lifestyle changes that I had made, you know, I don't drink alcohol. I don't smoke. I don't use drugs. I meditate for an hour a day. Like, I have good practices in my life. All those things, while positive contributors to sleep, 
ultimately weren't enough to overcome a, a very real physiological challenge that I have where the muscles in the back of my throat, when I fall asleep, they relax and air doesn't get actually get down my, um, my windpipe. And as a consequence of that, I end up suffocating multiple times while I'm asleep and I'm not conscious. I don't, I, this is at a subconscious level, but I'm suffocating. And when I suffocate, your mind wakes you to a level of alertness to tighten those muscles. So air gets back down, you fall back asleep again, the muscles relax, blocked airway, you suffocate. And the latest test that I did, I was uh, losing breath about 30 times an hour, which meant that persistently over the course of my sleep schedule, I would be suffocating in my sleep hundreds of times throughout the course of the night. And it's no wonder that I wasn't um, getting restful sleep. My body was running a marathon in a subconscious state, in addition to me spending all of my time throughout my day, you know, grinding away as an entrepreneur and exercising and doing all the things that I would do. So my kind of my PSA today, and I don't normally do this, my PSA for those listening is if you are having challenges with your sleep, if you have tried innumerable number of lifestyle, nutritional and environmental changes, and you still find yourself getting up every day exhausted, you may want to go see a doctor and look at some very common ailments that affect us. Things like anemia, things like sleep apnea. Um, there are very real conditions that can be contributing to your health. And as I move out of this phase of my life, I'm super excited about the potential because I think about how much I was able to accomplish individually in spite of some of those challenges. And as I go forward to know that I'm going to get more restful sleep and that I'm going to be able to feel recharged and refreshed when I get up in the morning on a more consistent basis. Um, it just, to me, gives me a lot of optimism about the future. Yeah. And I can, I can only imagine what you'll uh, accomplish when you uh, start sleeping better, uh, better again. But you, you do touch upon an interesting point about tracking. Uh, we, we track in a business context all the time. We track our goals. Um, but when we, when we look at our personal lives, I think that, that often gets forgotten. And things like the, the O-ring are, are great just to see, actually get it at, at face value, what, what, what's happening with your body, how good you feel, and then start uh, making improvements. So for me, I was sleeping, yeah, well, <laughs> not that great as well. Uh, I had a lot of stress. Uh, I tried a number of things. <laughs> I, uh, I bought a weighted blanket myself. Uh, but then by, by systematically looking at things and, and reviewing them, experimenting uh, with certain sleep trackers and the different, a lot of different sleep trackers, I found, found some root causes. And one of those uh, causes was just <laughs> drinking too much caffeine. Uh, and another one was uh, some things that I was intolerant to. Uh, but figuring out what doesn't work for you and then making those improvements, uh, that, that has had an enormous uh, impact on my life. And I, I can tell you, once you start sleeping uh, better again, that will probably have a, an amazing impact. I've already warned the people in my life closest to me because uh, I have a reputation for being passionate and intense and high energy. And I've told them all that I have had a sleep disorder. And they're going, okay, this is going to be a lot. So I'm going to have to focus on a new challenge, which is putting a lid on the energy going forward. Um, I'm excited to be able to face that challenge head on. Um, that seems like a lot more fun of a challenge to try and face than having to, to will myself into a degree of motivation. Again, Michael raised a great point. I think that, you know, we we oftentimes invest a lot in things that 
are important, but there's nothing as important as your health. And it goes back to how you show up in this world and whether you are, uh, if you think about yourself in the context of being in the workplace as a leader, as an individual contributor, as a parent, as a friend, as a partner, and just for yourself, um, the ability to, to spend time and if necessary, spend resources to take care of yourself. I don't think there's been a better example of the critical importance of that in 2020. And you mentioned, you know, the importance of entrepreneurs you know, being able to manage their own psychology, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I would, I would expand that to the broader society. We're living in a time that has never been more complex, that has never stressed the human mind as much as it is today. Our minds were not configured to handle this much uh, information, this, these many inputs, this kind of stress. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a coincidence that we see rising rates of burnout, that we see challenges in broader society, um, and especially when you layer on other complexities like a global pandemic and the isolation that, and the economic challenges and the social unrest that stem from all those items, um, it's no wonder that people are going through a difficult time. And investments that you make in yourself will pay you back in all areas of your life. And we are only on this planet for a finite period of time. You want to enjoy that time as much as possible, but if you have a brick tied around one of your legs and you're dragging that through the rest of your life, it's not a fun existence. And I'm like you, Michael, I'm obsessed with data and tracking and it's easy. You start to convince yourself, you start to normalize poor health, poor habits, poor behaviors, poor relationships when they endure for a period of time. But items like the aura ring, you know, if you have the benefit of, you know, I've done a bunch of diagnostic tests on like blood work and you know things of that nature that can give you scientific evidence that points to how you were actually performing physiologically and functionally. It only can, you know, give you information that will illuminate if there are challenges, if there are not challenges. And I'll tell you, Michael, of, of all the challenges that I faced in managing my fatigue, um, and there were many, uh, there were days where I had to get up and show up for a you know, sales pitch or deliver a keynote address in front of thousands of people, or even show up for a podcast like this and just not be into it, but have to will myself into a degree of excitement and enthusiasm. That, that was difficult. The hardest part was the self-talk and the the not knowing. So the the not having the clarity as to what it was, my mind would naturally go to a place where I was the problem. It was my lifestyle. It was my habits. It was my failings as an individual, as an entrepreneur, as a leader. And that's the reason why I couldn't overcome these challenges. And you know, to have a diagnosis that points to something that is physiological, while in some ways not great, in other ways, fantastic, because it relieves a significant amount of burden off of me as an individual to say, no, it's not about you. It's about this other challenge that you can now tackle. And I, there are a lot of people who are looking themselves in the mirror every single day as business leaders and as parents and as entrepreneurs and as friends and as partners, and they may not feel like they're measuring up. And I would encourage you that if that's something that you experience on a consistent basis to look at, you know, getting yourself in front of the right kind of people, the right kind of practitioners, the right kind of tests and measures, because it may not be 
you're failing. It likely isn't. It's likely something that's extraneous to you and, and identifying that and solving that could be, and, and in cases, if it's present, will be a significant benefit in your life. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think people still underestimate the effect of sleep or the lack of sleep. And I think we started giving new joiners at TechWolf the book, Why We Sleep by uh, Matthew Walker, because we, we noticed for ourselves what a crucial difference it makes. If you're well-rested, you get into less arguments, you are sharper, you're uh, less irritated and so on. So we, we give it as part of the onboarding package. And, and one of the co-founders, Jeroen, is actually so adamant that everybody actually reads it as well, because we've seen the impact that it has on us, just the awareness of, of how bad you actually perform uh, when you when you sleep too little you might be caffeinated up but then still sleep is so crucial and if people uh, feel themselves bad or depressed and and they feel like they can't get out of the bed uh, feel like they aren't motivated they might not need to look much further than than getting more or better sleep we could do a whole episode of on sleep because it you're, you're absolutely right and there are layers to this challenge but if you're living in a life where you're oscillating between fatigue and caffeination. It's not a good habit to get into. And I was there, Michael. I mean, for years, I would use two, three Americanos in the morning to get myself into a state of somewhat semi-readiness. But of course, caffeine has short-term benefits, just like sugar. And on the other side of that high, you actually sink deeper than where you started. To say nothing of the dehydration and the other challenges. Hey, I enjoy a cup of coffee like the next person, but it's not the solution to a to a long-standing problem, um, everything in moderation. And you're right, when it comes to sleep, it affects everything to do with your cognition from your memory to your irritability, to your concentration, to your creativity, to your interpersonal skills. We can go on and on and on about the second and third degree effects of that. And yes, you may be able to perform for short periods of time and and have some success in very small integrals. But if you're consistently not getting the right kind of sleep, it will have declining returns over time. And I can speak from personal example and personal experience um, that at some point you will hit a wall. Um, We call it burnout. We call it fatigue. We call it depression. We call it adrenal failures, whatever you want to call it. But if you, your body can only take so much and either you're going to have to reduce the amount of inputs or you're going to have to expect less outputs if you're not going to address the problem. So um, you know, bravo for you guys for recognize the critical importance of sleep. I'm at a stage now, Michael, where you know, in new employees that join our organization get two things from us. They're going to get an aura ring and they're going to get a virtual reality headset. <laughs> because like, it, it, the, 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 you know, it's an investment financially that will pay back a hundredfold over when one, when people are, looking at their health in a quantifiable, measurable way. Because when you know what you're dealing with and when you can see the results in an empirical way, at least it gives you a choice. And most people will be inclined to want to see positive progression on a numer- empirical trend. When it's subjective and it's not empirical, it's very easy to attach it to other things that may or may not be distracting and may or may not be real. But having the numbers, being able to wake up every morning and look at my sleep results and see it in an empirical way, I can. that gives me a degree of confidence in the result, but also over the time, it gives me a sense of the trend. 
And it forces me to make a decision every day of, do I want to undertake the right behaviors that I know will contribute to positive sleep and rest and recovery and relaxation, or do I not? And this having that empowerment is so great. And then from a virtual reality perspective, as I've mentioned a couple of times in this chat, and as you've mentioned as well, Michael, we're going to operate in a world where hybrid is the new normal. And we need to expect that we're not going to have the luxury of coming together as a team as frequently as we once did. However, we can still build connection in a remote way. And the best way to do that today is with virtual reality. So our team members have virtual reality headsets. We do meet in VR for team meetings. We actually have been pitching clients recently in virtual reality and getting business through that mechanism. Um, it's, it's a technology that's very much on the upswing. It's not the, it's not the panacea for all the world's problems, um, but it is, a, it is a, a solution to many of the problems that existed before COVID-19 and will exist in a post-pandemic world. And we view those investments going forward as significant in terms of ensuring that we have the, the people that we know want to contribute in our organization, that they have the right tools to do the job effectively. Yeah, that's uh, it's actually really cool that you're, uh, that you're going to give uh, your employees ordering. So we might uh, bring that up <laughs> in one of our meetings as well. Uh, we actually uh, started talking about it in, in the company chat, and we already have three people with one. So uh, I'm curious to see where that brings us. I mean, I get it. Like we're in a situation now where economically speaking, a lot of individuals and a lot of organizations are in a tough spot and they're in a worse spot than they were this time last year. So I understand it. And I understand that there are, there are very real limitations around resources. So I'll put that out there. And we spend a lot of money on silly things, both as individuals and as organizations. And I am, I am as put my hand up like everybody else to say that I've spent money on myself and on things that are, have zero ROI, that are not delivering benefit to me in the long term. Um, I have spent money as a business leader in procuring services and products that ultimately did not deliver a strong ROI. So if we can spend a few hundred dollars to outfit someone with a VR headset and a few hundred more dollars to outfit somebody with an aura ring, for example, I think about how much money I spent flying people around the world to meet for in-person meetings, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I think about how much money I've spent on all the myriad of things that we talked about, weighted blankets and blackout curtains and different kinds of sheets and medications and supplements and all these different tips and tricks and hacks hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars trying to find the solution that ultimately I could have found with some empirical evidence. Um, so yes, there's an upfront cost, um, but I choose to view those types of costs as investments. And I'm a big believer that if you find the right people and if you create a good environment and you give them the tools to do their jobs effectively, that most people are going to want to show up and return that kind of kindness in terms of their performance. And we're in a knowledge-based economy where it is so much easier to get people's best when you collaborate and you engage them and you empower them than when you chase them and you put them in a situation where there's fear or manipulation or threats of consequences. So I, I, that's just the, my mantra in terms of how I've approached life. I've seen both tiles of management and I know what works best for me as an individual and what works best for me as a leader. And Going forward, we want to make investments in our teams and we'll make investments in our clients as well to make sure that they can have success because most of us get up in the morning the same way 
and we want to contribute. We want to have a good, you know, a good day at work. We want to have a good day at life. And sometimes things get in the way. So if we can identify those things and remove those barriers, we'll all be happier for it. Yeah, definitely. And just in general, investing in well-being, and I want to stress investing, uh, is something that every every company should do, and and maybe even startups uh, should should do it more, uh, since uh, we expect. Not necessarily more from our employees, but the the environment is different. It's a high stress environment. It's a high performance environment. So stressing that well being is important is uh, is definitely something that uh, that everybody should do. Michael, as always, I enjoy our chats. Uh, thank you again for joining me so late in your day. For those folks that want to get a hold of Michael, but want to learn more about Tech Wolf, about how they can use artificial intelligence in the context of their strategic workforce planning or of their broader talent challenges in their organization, I'm going to link all of Michael's details and all of Tech Wolf's details in the comment section of this podcast. Michael, thank you again for your time today and looking forward to us connecting again, hopefully after a good night's rest. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Bye-bye. At Bento HR, we enable your HR strategy with custom HR technology procurement, implementations, and integrations to liberate your team from administration, enhance their productivity and experience, to position them at the center of your organization's transformation, where they belong. With experience as an HR executive myself, I have a real appreciation of the challenges facing today's HR leaders. The world is changing. Your industry is being disrupted. Your organization is transforming. And all the while, you're trying to do more with less. You're being asked to simultaneously model fiscal restraint while the expectations of your departments are only increasing. At Bento HR, we can support you at every stage of your transformation. From architecting the strategy to developing and selling the business case internally, We support procurement, implementations, and ongoing sustainment. And we tie it all together with a deep knowledge of the HR profession. And over six decades of combined experiences from our founding team, who has worked in or supported large HR organizations across multiple industries, including, but not limited to, financial services, technology, retail, transportation, and healthcare. Check out Bento HR today to build your very own Bento box, which doubles as your business case for transformation. Leveraging recent research into the upside of digital automation inside organizations, and with your help in answering a few simple questions related to your organization, our Bento builder will provide a directional business case for change. So log on to www.bentohr.com and build your Bento box today.